Hello, everybody, and welcome back to The Hopeless Romantic. It has been so long, but as always, I am your host, Austin Chant. I am your host. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yeah, wow, it has been a while. It's been a little while. <laughs> I am your other host, Amanda Jean. And this is, I think I already said, this is, this is The Hopeless Romantic, is what it is. We can't we can't take a two month uh, hiatus, two and a half month hiatus again. It's bad for no, us. No, it's bad for us. Uh, my my muscles, my my podcasting muscles are all atrophied. Yeah. Uh, so obviously it has been a little bit. Our last episode went up in November for our anniversary, um, and then we both had to take a long hiatus for various life things, life things like the revenge of the chronic injury and the Austin um, picking up and moving within a week of starting to look for a place to live and moving and a job and a job and deciding to quit freelancing and uh, going out and getting a full-time job and living in the city for the first time in my life, which is cool. My semester started back up and I feel like other things were happening aside from general, you know, malaise of living in, uh, actually, you know what? I take that back. 2018 is going to be a great year for me, even if I have to beat it to death myself. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like you're, that's an interesting metaphor you went with. (laughs) I'm going to beat it into submission and or death. (laughs) One of the reasons we had such a long hiatus was because we were really trying to think of a way to make THR a less um, fraught recording process. And we had been recording for two years and our original plan was weekly, which then shifted to biweekly, which then basically became monthly. Because uh, it turns out that if you try to do too much, um, you'll fail at it and keep going on hiatus. Yeah, and I think what we we came together with our two year anniversary, and we talked about like what do we want to do, what do we feel has been most successful about the podcast, and what has been the most fun, and realized that we while we still want to do plenty of interviews, plenty of features on how tos and how to write stuff, we also feel like we can get a lot out of that in a format that isn't like feature of the week where we go and we do a ton of research and we do long interviews and that kind of thing and have to deal with all the scheduling of getting guest stars. That's been a whole thing. It's been, our guest stars have been amazing. Um, and we're so grateful, but obviously our schedules are bad enough. And then you add one or two more people into the mix and it just becomes a whole thing. And that can, can and has really put off our recording more than once. Basically the technical issues that come with having, more than us when we already record separately and have to deal with internet and Skype breakdowns. So all those things have have caused a lot of delays on top of by having all of our episodes be kind of themed. It's meant that we've never really gotten into a rhythm. We're so constantly swapping topics um, and jumping around. So we had a long discussion of how we can make this work. And so we, we will still be doing Episodes that are like the old format, uh, guest episodes and, you know, big how-tos and and specials, but our regular bi-weekly podcast will be a little more low-key, a little more discussion-based, talk more current stuff that's going on. We will discuss what we're reading and writing and doing as professionals in the genre, 
We're expanding our focus a little bit. We've been doing that the whole time. We had a lot of offshoots like special bonus episodes and Hopeless After Dark. And I think that this shift in um, priority will actually eliminate the need for Hopeless After Dark episodes because those were in the gamut of discussing everything from, you know, how queer we are for Overwatch to what K-drama I'm currently crying over. And then, you know, we would circle back around to queer romance. And I think we can do that within the context of the show because I put I put it this way on the Hopeless Romantic Twitter. If you've been listening to us for two years fairly regularly, or maybe you just came on a couple months ago, but if you've been listening to us, um, at this point, you kind of know what we're about and what our patter is like and our silly senses of humor. So for us to change our format to incorporate more of that, rather than having these ex- extremely specialized episodes Rarely, I think you know what you're in for. And hopefully you don't hate it. (laughs) Yes, we hope you don't hate it. We're both really excited because we really want to grow as hosts and grow the show in a way that's more sustainable for us and lets us do a little more commentary on more current events, I guess, in the genre, as opposed to just like a special feature that is never going to be extremely current because it takes us so long to make them. We're officially expanding our focus a little bit. It will still be very queer and it will still be very fictional representation and media focused. Uh, We may be looking a little bit more outside just queer romance fiction. So for example, today, one of the things we're going to talk about is Call Me By Your Name. (laughs) Which just Amanda starts giggling nervously because she knows what's coming for her emotionally. So a lot of folks have been talking about Call Me By Your Name because obviously it's the big gay film <laughs> um, and it's award season and blah, blah, blah. And it just came out in its widest release um, relatively recently. We watched it a couple weeks ago, had extremely different reactions to the film. <laughs> uh, and I think that will be a really fun way to kind of dive into this slight expansion. And obviously the thing is we've done that before. Like we've talked about movies before we've talked about comics and games and all this stuff that's relevant. Given that we're already a pretty geeky podcast, I think it just makes sense with our focus to not restrict ourselves just to queer romance fiction. Although it is very important to us, we both work in the field. And so of course that will remain a huge part of the show. I think it's important to remember for us personally that queer romance doesn't happen in a vacuum and it uh, has a lot of like Venn diagram crossover with other kinds of media and is connected to like the history and legacy of queer fiction in general. So I don't feel too weird about stepping outside the the lines in this respect. Um, I will also say there will be, we're not going to get into Call Me By Your Name quite yet, but there will be spoilers for both the book and the movie and we'll let you know when that happens. But you can feel free to listen to this podcast up until that point if you would like to avoid the spoilers. Also, I feel like as a general notice, I should say this may not be our quietest recording ever. (laughs) Uh, I have moved into a new apartment that is in many ways great. But here are a few things about it that are inconvenient for recording a podcast. Single pane windows, 70 year old creaky wooden floors, Mm. children upstairs and musicians downstairs. (laughs) Beautiful. (laughs) And right now they're all being fairly quiet, but I've probably jinxed it just by saying that. So uh, we're going to do our best. Yeah. At any given point, my my roommate's cat may start crying and my upstairs neighbors may resume their river dancing. So (laughs) as a side note, one of the things that 
was frustrating for me as a producer of the show and someone who handles a lot of scheduling. And one of the things that kind of kept putting me off my game was there were um, a couple of things that we kept trying to tackle from the beginning of the show that kept getting derailed. Like we wanted to feature more authors of um, sapphic fiction and we wanted to feature authors of color. And all of our scheduling attempts kind of kept falling through because we feel like that's super duper important and it kept uh, not culminating in a recording. And um, so that is, again, one of our huge goals for 2018 when we do have guests on is to make sure that we are talking about uh, talking to sapphic authors and talking to authors of color. Yeah. So it's just something that it's obviously really important. And it's disappointing to us that we have not been able to do that. And I should say, like failed to do <laughs> We have failed to do that, yeah, and, we have failed to and do that it. is on us. And it's also something that our old format was, I think, exacerbating because we were so focused on doing like one thing at a time that it, you know it was like, okay, we're going to do an episode about disability, and that's all the content we can do <laughs> in a, in a month and a half. Yeah, <laughs> and so I think switching it up to a format that's easier for us to do is going to open up a lot more avenues, and I'm very glad. Yeah, appreciate y'all sticking with us, and we will do better on that front. Since you have recently moved and started your full time adulty job that has nothing to do with writing about romance, mm -hmm. we wanted to talk about the about freelancing and the realities of freelancing because uh, I have freelanced since. I've freelanced in queer romance since January of 2013. So, what, five years now? I freelanced for about a year before that doing other stuff. So, about five or six years of freelance work. And then you tried to, you, you were partially freelancing for, um, what, the last, like, two years? Yeah, last couple years. And then um, graduated college last June and went full-time freelancing. And it, it was very terrible. I'm just going to come straight up and admit that because I hope that is valuable for other people to, to hear as a, as a validation thing. It was a nightmare. For the record, I'm not quitting writing or anything. I will still be freelancing as a writer. It's just not something I'm going to do full time. You're not centering it as your, your mode of income. Yeah. I was making very little money. I was really struggling with health stuff and a lot of money, money, stress. Money, money, stress? Why? For what reason? <laughs> it was so stressful you had to say money, money twice. Money, 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 stress. <laughs> bills, 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 stress. Bills, bills, bills. Uh, <laughs> it was a rough time. It was a really rough six months. I burned out the hardest I have ever burned out, I think. And I'm still kind of dealing with the aftermath of how hard I burned out. And I didn't even realize it really at the time. I finished a draft of the, the Peter Darling sequel in November, and that is the last thing I have written. And that is really abnormal for me. I'm normally somebody who always has a project and is always like, if I don't write, I get sad. And the fact that I have not wanted to write in almost two months just felt absolutely no interest in doing so tells me that that was, it was not only toxic from a healthcare and money and life perspective, but it was also really bad for me as a creator. So yeah, it was just very stressful. It was, I'm not discounting the possibility that I may be able to go freelance someday, but it was not the right time and not good. Not good. <laughs> not good. <laughs> so uh, when pretty much all through December, I was job hunting and starting in January and then I got a job about two weeks ago and it's a full-time nine to five kind of gig 
probably can't talk super much about what it is, but let me tell you, it's it's a day job. It's a it is a job where I work and and I I just do that and I'm not super emotionally invested in the work that I do. That's great. <laughs> that love sounds it. like the ideal, frankly. It. It's grand. <laughs> You have a standing desk, even. I have a standing desk. That this is—it's all just stuff that has been making me like simultaneously happy and furious because freelancing was so rough, and yeah. on top of that, it was also hurting my body because I couldn't afford a standing desk. And now I have a job in tech, and I walk in and they're like, "Here's your ergonomic everything." Yeah, you know, it's it's free. I'm not gonna get super deep into numbers, but. The, the my main gig that I had while I was freelancing, let's just say I am making about as much in a week now as as you made I in a did, month. As I made in a month, but not only that, like to do like very chill, borderline entry level labor that is not emotionally taxing at all, versus writing uh, most of a novel worth of serious creative work in a month. On, not only that, but on top of that, like, it's a job. So, like, I don't have to pay freelance taxes, which are th- the fucking worst. And just all of that. So, feeling much, much better on a human level. I'm feeling a little weird as a creator right now because I haven't written anything in so long. Although I am, I've, I've outlined two things that are two things I'm not supposed to be working on, which is a good sign. That's the good, that old, is a good sign. That's the good you old rebellious, <laughs> creative bad, spirit. Bad <laughs> man. Uh, I'm really excited about the thing I outlined over lunch today. I feel like we need to temper some of this with the fact that freelancing is an option it just that you have <laughs> you to be ex- that was such enthusiasm yeah yeah seriously i think you should you should talk about freelancing because you have had a much more stable and i think a, a better approach to it stable huh i mean <laughs> relatively so i started doing um some freelancing in uh, 2012 and that was just extra money i had come to a crisis point where i realized yet again that my plan was not going to work in terms of what i was going to do for a living so i started writing essentially like seo content and informational articles which is a drudgery of a job and i wouldn't wish it on anyone and you get paid almost nothing to do it i don't even remember how much money i made in 2012 from freelancing projects but it was not my sole source of income 2013 is when I started working for LT3 as a contractor. When I was working for LT3 as a contractor in the early days, they had the highest rate that I have encountered pretty much anywhere that I've worked at the time. And I'm not going to get into what individual people pay, but I was doing okay for my first year freelancing in queer romance, but I did not make enough to live on by any means. Um, It was not meeting my basic needs. And that was partially because I was new, partially because I was not taking full-time work and also because freelancing is a special kind of hell. <laughs> yeah, let's, I mean, I feel like it always bears mentioning that like if you had a job pretty much doing any kind of, of the creative work that you do as a freelancer, you would be making, do we want to say like quadruple probably that amount of work easily? The thing about freelancing when you're working from home 
is that, and this could be just my lack of self-discipline, although I have worked on it for the last several years, you don't get to not take your work home with you. You have to set extremely rigid rules about when you sleep, when you eat, when you break, when you, what days you even work. Cause there were some times I was working seven, seven day work weeks. Um, I was working more than 40 hours a week sometimes, sometimes way less. Uh, and that's one of the benefits of freelancing is you can cut your hours way down if you need to. I basically got up, worked, went to bed, worked. Like there was very little, there was very little structure to my personal life. And that is something that I have struggled with since I started. And that is partially a fault of my own. And also I know the freelancer's curse. I like that you're like, Oh, it's my lack of self-discipline. I work seven days a week over 40 <laughs> hours. I feel like it's funny to call it self-discipline, but it really is. It was a, it, it was an inability to prioritize my own personal life and health. And because I got major mental fatigue and I had started in my first or second year branching out and taking any opportunity I could get because I was attempting to pad my resume and also learn more because I'm kind of insatiable. And um, when it comes to learning. (laughs) (laughs) So I started doing unpaid internships. I started doing volunteer work. I I hit up anybody who I thought might be a window into an interesting gig. And I don't recommend unpaid labor. It's funny because you see a lot of discussion about unpaid internships being about privilege, and they are because usually the only people who can um, afford to take unpaid internships are people who have alternate means of support, uh, maybe a wealthy family or, um, you know, their college is paid for via scholarship or something. That was not the case for me at all. I was I was making very little money, and yet I was still donating my time to pad my resume. And I think that's the flip side of unpaid internships is the exploitation of poverty. Yeah. Because you really do need these opportunities, and frequently you cannot get them unless you are not paid. Um, so I don't recommend that to people, but I know realistically that it happens and I did it. And, uh, there's also a difference between like an unpaid internship and volunteering with an organization because you feel passionately about it. I, um, have done both of those things and they are wildly different and they are widely different in terms of uh, the expectation of your input and work. I've worked with, um, less than three press, Bella, Books, Nine Star, Evernight, Siren Books, Strand, Ilva, Bella. I said Bella. Uh, Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna fuck up on this podcast. Torquere. Torquere, who like they're gone, so it doesn't matter if I fuck up their name. And I did some other stuff too. And I I moved to LA for a while. Was like I'm going to live in LA, and went I hate this and left. But I was still freelancing in LA, even as I walked four days a week to my office job in marketing. I have a love-hate relationship with freelancing. It's allowed me to do what I want to do, but I also did have some extremely lean years and I'm still recovering from the damage I did to (laughs) my mental and physical health by just putting on blinders and working with no no super strong boundaries to protect myself. It's so dangerous because you're trying to make money and you're trying to do your best job. You're experiencing mental and physical fatigue. Uh, And for freelancers, the physical fatigue is one thing, but the mental fatigue when you're editing or writing or whatever it is that you're doing, you can't afford to have that because your work quality will drop and then you will get less work. I was having this thought the other day because I was having a roughish day at my new job, not at the job itself, but just like a kind of weird rough mental health day. And I was like, I can kind of just dissociate and still do this job. And that is not the case for me when I'm writing. I have to be reasonably mentally well to make stuff that's coming so fully out of my brain and out of my 
you know, sense of art, to put it vaguely and irritatingly. It's just such a such a weird divide. I think in some ways I was lucky that I tried this right after graduation because I was already so tired and burnt out that it made it very clear that I couldn't push past your already limited reserves. <laughs> yeah. Because I just I was at a mental health point where when I was feeling okay, I could work. But I just had no, I had no reserves at all. And so the moment my health took a dive, physical or mental, it was just like, nope, can't do it. I've hit that wall and it's yeah. brutal. And you're just sitting there like, it's very executive dysfunction. And you're just sitting there like, hey, but but I have to, to make the money. And yeah, to live. just to, like, nope. To buy food, to make my rent. I'm like, but I, but I, but I need to. And Brain's just like, too bad. And I think the reality is that a lot of people in publishing do not freelance full time. Some people have the, and I hesitate to call it a luxury unless you are making a certain amount of money. Some people have the luxury of uh, freelancing entirely and working from home or wherever they may be. That is not the case for most people. Most people I know who are even successful by whatever metric they're using to track success usually um, have a partner who works a traditional nine to five and can help them or they are in school or they are also working full time or part time doing something else. There is very rarely a case of somebody who can afford to freelance full time. Someday my sugar daddy will come. <laughs> you're just waiting. I'm waiting. You're like a you're like trapped in a tower looking out just like please free me from this prison. <laughs> I'm uh, I'm extremely lucky that I was able to persevere through the ups and downs of mental health uh, and am now um, not primarily free freelancing. I do still freelance because mama needs that money. But um, <laughs> it is uh, this is the first time I think this is going to be the first time I file my taxes where I don't have a huge deficit that I have to deal with. That's the other thing when you freelance is you have to pay quarterly taxes and it's a huge chunk of your income. And if you're not setting it aside, you should be. Uh, but the first like two years I was working freelance, I did not pay quarterly taxes. So every year that I filed was like, oh, you owe X amount of thousands of dollars generally. And so I kept like racking up. This is an example of how not to freelance. I, I kept racking up tax debt, basically overdue taxes. And they'll like the IRS is fairly kind. They will let you do payment plans, but they're like, yo, you have to pay your taxes. You have to pay quarterly taxes or you have to make some attempt to pay taxes. So I, I, I do. I, I am a responsible adult human who understands how freelancing works. And I did the first two years. I was just like, you can't take this money from me. I need it to live. Yeah. <laughs> like, I mean, at a certain point, it's just eat. like, look, I didn't really have it to begin with. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's where like, do you think it went? I just feel like the first year they got my tax return, they were probably like, oh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Ooh. Oh, I'm sorry. Sorry yeah. we have to take this money from you. I feel like it's important to discuss the realities of freelancing extremely candidly. And I know that it, that may be disheartening for some folks to hear, but my advice is honestly, if you can, if you, if you can do something else to augment your income, while you are freelancing, please do it. I realize that's difficult for some people. They may not have the res the reserves physically or mentally to do that. Um, and they may have to rely purely on freelancing as I did, but it's difficult and you have my, my empathy. And um, actually, if you want any more specialized advice, please feel free to hit me up on Twitter or email me and I will talk to you about the nitty gritty, although I'm still not going to talk about what people pay. <laughs> <laughs> 
There are limits with employers. But yeah, <laughs> that's the thing about freelancing in queer romance is that no one follows an industry standard of payment, really. If you look on like the certain websites, like the Editors Association websites and um, like copy editors, they'll say like, this is your hourly rate. This is your rate per page, per word, for which type of editing. And frankly, I have never encountered um, anyone in queer romance who pays those rates. If you're starting out uh, or if you're coming to queer romance from like a traditional small press or even big five, like that's what you're going to have to deal with is there is no no agreed upon base rate in queer romance. Um, if you're freelancing as an author, um, you know what your rates are going to be out the gate, but you can't anticipate how many books you will sell. Yeah, it's inherently very uncertain. I want to address too the the thing that is always tr- is always I think for a lot of creatives there, and that's that like. You are not less of an artist or less of a successful artist if you can't do it full time. I think and I think the thing that lured me in was I was like, I am willing to work very, very hard and I am willing to because I'd done it before, you know, like I'd been writing on weekends and shit. I was like, if I can write an absurd amount of words in a weekend so that I can get my book done, I can do it full time. And I think the thing that I was not prepared for was how quickly it would corrupt the practice that I do love, how how quickly needing to do it to make any money and be able to pay rent and live would sneak into the back of my mind while I was writing anything, even my passion, even my passion projects and start to drain away that sense of I'm going to do something that's really important to me and different and cool to, yeah, but if I do that, then maybe I don't eat. You would come into it with savings even. Yeah. And you had been freelancing before then. So it wasn't like you had gone cold turkey. And I will say, I think you had assumed like, because of the distractions and the resource hogging of like school was over that you would be able to put that energy toward freelancing and writing. But it was really more like a nano every single day. Nano with the added expectation of like, I have to pay my bills with this. <laughs> and it was like, and not even nano because nano has a very unique kind of energy to it. And this was just, just always the slog. I think because there was so much pressure on everything I was writing. Whereas before, even when I had been doing, you know, like one of my ridiculous 20 hour weekends for Peter Darling, like that was a weird thing that I was doing for myself when I wasn't working. And I just want to share this before other writers, mainly like having the security of not having my income depending on writing at this point, I feel like the the chains have come off all of a sudden. Even though I haven't really gotten my my writing practice back yet, it's just like now I'm looking at all the stuff I want to do and hunting down the little part, the little voice in the back of my head that's like, you won't make money if you write about blah, blah, blah. And just being like, hey, shut up. Who cares? I feel so much more empowered to pursue all these projects that I wanted to do weird stuff and more experimental stuff that is going to push me as a creator. Whereas when all of that pressure was riding on it, I, I felt like I wasn't, I couldn't go anywhere because there was so much pressure on this has doing to, stuff fast, fast yeah. enough to make money on it that it was like, I can't afford to invest the mental labor in getting better. I had, I got to work. 
part of this is that I, I'm a, a baby, an uppity <laughs> baby. And I feel like I have a lot of room to grow and I also want to. I want to be better. Um, so I think we both have that, like that irrepressible drive to keep learning and expanding. I must defeat myself at every step. I'm generally not comparing myself to other people. I'm comparing myself to my own ridiculous expectations. Austin fights Um. Austin. Amanda (laughs) fights Amanda. So on that note, um, I feel like we've, we've talked about the perils and uh, delights of freelance, mostly the perils of freelancing long enough. Do you want to talk a little bit about... Do you want to call me by your name and I'll call you by mine? Amanda. Austin. We did it right. Did I'm we? so proud is of that, us. Oh no, that is right. Sweet. Yeah. Sweet. Yeah, this the is like first the time, first or the second. first time Amanda tried to do that with me. I just reflexively was like, okay, Amanda, wait. <laughs> no, that's still your... Austin. Your <laughs> We're too gay and not gay enough for this. Uh, as I mentioned, there will be spoilers for Call Me By Your Name, the movie, and Call Me By Your Name, the book, because we are going to get into some nitty gritty. <laughs> um, I was originally going to do a thing where we talked about it in non-spoilery terms first, but like, yeah, fuck that. It. I don't feel like spending the time <laughs> censoring myself. Mutual, I'm bad at it anyway. <laughs> mutually agreed. Nah, fuck that. <laughs> nah, fuck that. I will preface this by saying I uh, read the book in 2008. It is not a romance novel. It is a novel that is centered around this life-changing and life-shaping romance for a 17-year-old precocious lad named Elio or Elio. All of these pronunciations are taken with a grain of salt. (laughs) Uh, And I read it in 2008. And honestly, my memory of that book is just um, deluge of first-person extremely lush obsession and feelings that and with a couple of notes of like oh i remember this scene or i remember this line and remember the peach i remembered the peach god bless me in that peach uh so for anybody who doesn't mind spoilers and so is still listening to us um and who doesn't already know this he fucks a peach yeah i was gonna i was gonna have like a nice we're gonna nicely segue into that (laughs) I was gonna, I was gonna like give the peach some room to like flourish and be I'm a peach. Saying, he fucks a peach, and you're just like, it's um, inexcusable. He's gonna fuck. <laughs> fuck you! I'm gonna take you to fucking peach church today. Um, <laughs> I won't stand for it. We we saw the movie this the first week of January, as we said. We saw it with um, two of our friends. Um, and actually, I have the recording of us watching the peach scene. I should ask everybody if they want me to slice and dice that up and see if they're okay with me putting it at the end of the episode. I don't even remember how I reacted to that in the moment. I think I was just like... I do, because I listen to it sometimes because it's fucking funny. <laughs> <laughs> just like, oh no, oh buddy. And then like, Christ! Like, <laughs> that sounds like do me. It. Yeah, <laughs> that literally. does sound like me. I, I remember my immediate reaction to the film was that it was unbearable. <laughs> yeah, in, in really... a way that transcended it was not that it was good or that it was bad but that it was unbearable to watch intense and yeah that's the funny thing also we had a really unique experience of watching the movie in that at rose's house she kept pausing it because she did not want her parents to come in during an inopportune moment such as peach fucking and so this is this is the ambiance of us watching this movie we watch five minutes of the movie we pause it uh in the background i hear her dad playing the guitar and or whistling her mom sometimes <laughs> comes in to do something uh you spill beer on the couch i did i did do that <laughs> 
It was a, it was a, it was a delight. I'm drinking beer. I'm waiting for the peach scene. Like it was a very, it was a very disjointed experience. I and thought I you do meant not right think. now. I was like, you're drinking? No, fuck okay. that. Um, so we had an extremely disjointed experience watching the movie, which I do not think improved it because some of the cuts in the film are quite jarring. Um, because sometimes the director Luca will let the camera linger on a shot. Um, and sometimes it'll just be like the 30 second scenes over you're, you're moving on to something else. And you're just like, what? Okay. That was a place to cut. You have to let the movie do what it's going to do. And when we kept pausing it, I do not think it, it let us sink into its weird rhythms. Yeah. So I think that that was another level of detachment, which I know that uh, you experienced. And I think maybe, um, other people did. I, have since rewatched it. And I think I was the only one there who had read the book. I think so. And yeah. both of those things have changed my opinion of it. Also, I'm currently um, finishing up the audiobook, which army hammer who plays Oliver in the film reads. And I just opened up the ebook to find something. Cause I wanted to talk about it in the episode and I was reading the text and I was like, boy, this is a lot weirder to read it just on your own. Instead of when army hammer is like whispering in your ear, huskily about <laughs> dick like it's, it's different are you gonna do a dramatic reading all, all i'll say is that uh army hammer leans into some shit <laughs> <laughs> he's just like oh is this the scene where we're gonna talk about the shape of his ass and the the soles of his feet i don't know army army's feeling it army army is is um into the project you can tell he feels emotionally about it and i think the fact that uh, the book is such a close first person narration and it has some self-awareness because it's elio recounting this love affair that he had when he was 17 and it, it kind of there's a couple more spots along the way where it's um you know it's the book set in 87 the movie set in 84 and then there's a couple mile posts along the way in the book that are like the 90s and then knots i feel like at this point i want to mention that you have an ongoing experience with this book <laughs> and movie and audiobook and ebook um, <laughs> the and Tumblr tags and the, me. When I mentioned at the soundtrack. beginning that we had like sort of a, a disparate experience of Call Me By Your Name, but then I mean, Amanda has lost her shit and continued <laughs> to lose know. her shit ever since. Know. And I being, a, I am a crybaby and a, a wuss usually when it comes to emotions. And I was completely unaffected by that film. I had no emotional attachment to the relationship or the characters beyond like, this seems unhealthy and I don't want them to be together. <laughs> but like I managed to watch the entire, like just unbearable agonizing, like 10 minutes of Elio crying at the end. And it was just kind of like, Oh kid. No, oh, all right. Right. Whatever. <laughs> it was weird. Like, this is not a way that I, I'm like a, a, a empathetic crier. If somebody is crying in front of me, I'm crying. And so the fact that I came away from that film, like... Shrugs. Shrugs. <laughs> and again, not like it was a bad film. I was just like, man, I, did, I, I don't think that those people should have 
been in a relationship. When I finished the film, I did not really have much of a reaction to it aside from like, oh, that's, you know, like I had some empathy for Elio because I was like, man, that that really would be a, a brutal time in your life. Um, but I had some like detachment from it. And, you know, having read the book, I was like, I already knew what was going to happen. And there were a couple moments along the way where I was like, oh, you know, this is a nice movie. It's a good movie. I, I like it. I, I thought it was a good adaptation. The next day or the day after that, I was like up all night thinking about it. And I wasn't thinking about it in terms of what had happened in the movie. I was thinking about it in terms of the movie being set in 1984 in Europe, in Italy, and Oliver's the only American. And I was thinking about what it, what being queer in 1984 looked like and how they were basically sliding into the AIDS crisis and what that looked for, looked like for Oliver versus Elio being American and European and what that looked like for Oliver who spoiler alert um well fuck it like the I whole mean, thing where they know about the fucking peach <laughs> they know about the peach which is the most important part of the movie uh, Oliver gets married and has kids um in the in the in the book in the movie he only announces that he is engaged I was thinking about, like, they're both bi, or I read them both as bi. I was thinking about their identity as queer men living through AIDS and how that would shape them. And it was just fucking me up really badly. Really badly, because I was like, how much of that was Oliver getting married because he wanted to? And how much of it was his, like, weird academic, wealthy, handsome, you know, expectation that you get married and have kids? And how much of it was him being in love? And how much, you know, like, what was, what were his choices? And what would his feelings be during HIV AIDS, like, exploding Elio as well? So I just had a lot of feelings about that. And I think that was my gateway into caring about the film too much. I started, I, I downloaded the audiobook and I listened to it and I was just like, <laughs> like oh boy, I'm, I'm right up in this first person, you know, narrative, which fills in some of the gaps that I think if you're really being swept along by the emotional narrative of the movie, you probably get everything. But if you're feeling detached from it, you probably don't. And one of the things that I keep coming back to is like, there is no happy ending for these characters, like with each other, I should say. It, it has nothing to do with their individual lives and how they play out. But there's something, I, I think that's what, what I keep coming back to is my brain keeps trying to fix that because I, mm -hmm. I actually quite like the, I like the idea of, these characters, but my brain is just like, well, I don't accept that this is this much uh, trans transformation and this much passion just has to rest in the past. And that's my own weird relationship with romance. It's such an odd experience because uh, if you had told me that I would be trying to to fix the ending of, of Call Me By Your Name, if you had told me that in 2008, I would have been like, that's a fucking joke. Like, it has this ending because it needs to. And if you told me that right after I saw the movie, I'd be like, that is also a fucking joke. <laughs> <laughs> but my brain keeps grappling and turning it around and being like, what if it weren't said in the 80s? How would that change their characters? How would that change their conception of themselves? I keep trying to fix it, and it's not something that needs to be fixed. Mm -hmm. There's something... About the unfinished business that is driving me up a wall. <laughs> and I will say this for the film. I think it is extremely real. Yeah. And I think that's why unbearable was the word that came to mind. Because it is watching Elio go through this like queer awakening as also an extremely volatile 17-year-old. Just awash in emotions to begin with and then exploding into this very inappropriate relationship with an older man in this wild summer and just sort of like emotionally exploding and imploding constantly and 
basically like falling in love, like for for good or for ill. Falling in love, like in a in a very serious way, and being still extremely immature, like extremely emotionally immature, but experiencing this very mature feeling, and just like flailing around. It's extremely real, and I think it's it was so uncomfortable for me to watch that as somebody who was there not that long ago. And uh, my takeaway was just like, oh my God, Oliver, get, get away from the, the baby. <laughs> get away from the get, baby. I keep wanting to say spoilers. Again, we're spoilers. We're all, <laughs> it's all spoilers all the time. The, the, they, they have sex and they're, the, it, no, no, it's the peach fucking scene. Actually, Oliver comes in and Elio in his usual teenage disaster ways, just fucked a peach. And He's the, no, no, no. He fucked a peach. He rolled over, did not clean his sticky peach self up, put the peach on the bedside table and fell asleep. And yeah. then Oliver came in after and was like, I'm going to blow you. And then realized that he was covered in sticky peach juice. It was like, yeah. what did you do? <laughs> thank you for thank you for recapping that. Because that important. leads into like, that's the point where Elio just like has a meltdown and is like crying like embarrassed and also like you know overcome with feelings and i'm I'm watching this and it's so real like it's so embarrassing and sticky and sad and and genuine i have to revise what you said and i'm very sorry because this is extremely important yep he did not have a meltdown purely because he was discovered having fucked a peach although no 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 it was because (laughs) oliver was like lol and like picked up the peach and in the book, he eats the peach. Yeah. He fully is just like, nom nom, delicious peaches and cream. Yeah, I made that joke. I'm sure I'm not the first. Uh-huh. Um, and he eats, he eats the cum peach. Um, but in the movie, he kind of, you know, sort of bemused by it. And I would even say a little into it. And all and uh, Elio is just like, <laughs> yeah. sick he's, he's, he's totally overcome. And I'm just sitting there like, on the one hand extremely impressed by the actor's performance, but I'm also saying like, Oliver, don't have sex with this person. <laughs> like he just fucked a peach and is now crying. And while still covered in sticky peach juice, don't have sex. With that was what was child. more upsetting to me, but more realistic is he just fucked a peach and rolled over. and wasn't like, I'm not going to wipe myself yeah, off. I'm like, like, you're going to attract flies. You child. Yeah. It's, it's so, it, it, it's so it's very well done, but I also was just like, Oh my God, I can't, I don't, I don't want it. Don't, don't sleep with him. Look, <laughs> if the peach weren't enough to show you that he's not emotionally mature, the fucking the crying meltdown should be. The cr- the crying meltdown is one of the moments where I s- like I see their relationship. Uh, which again, I I will stress, I don't actually think that they should have stayed together. Like that is no thing that my brain is trying to fix. It's like fix it later after that when mm-hmm. Elio is not a child. Um, uh, and I say that facetiously. I, I mean, I think seventeen is still a child, especially by like U.S. Um, age of consent standards in most states. I don't want to paint the impression. I don't want to paint the picture like I'm really fucked up about the age difference because I'm honestly not because it's fictional and I don't care. Oliver in the book is 24 and Army Hammer's what like 30, 31, so he looks older than 24. Yeah, I think that was part <laughs> of the problem too is that he does not look remotely 24. No, he looks 30. He looks 28 yeah. to 30. He's not six years older than Elio, but um, he's meant to be. The moment that turns from Elio doing you know a pretty 
honestly, like, I don't, I don't think it's, except for the fact that he fucked the peach and didn't even, like, throw it out or clean himself off, which I guess is realistic. I don't find the peach fucking to be that notable. I'm like, yeah, of course he stuck it in a peach. Like, he was a 17-year-old. He was horny and feeling it. He was just like, all right, fine. It's here. I'm here. The shift in tone from that, from, like, Oliver coming in to essentially blow him or something, to realizing about the peach... Elio having a, a very self-conscious, like, oh, God, no, 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 I'm sick. Like, I'm weird. I, I fucked a peach. And then Oliver, like, kind of teasing him and being like, oh, what if I, you know, you want to see sick? He kind of sticks his finger and <laughs> licks it. And Elio having a full tilt crying meltdown and Oliver going from, like, teasing him and kind of tussling with him. Oh, shit, this is a moment where I need to forge a genuine emotional connection with this kid. And he's just like, it's all right. It's all right. He holds him. And then um, while they're embracing, Elio's like, I don't want you to go. And that, this is a moment where I see their emotional intimacy rather than, like, a physical attraction. Um, they're both, both very much about pretense and unspoken shit. A lot of it, for most of the movie, is, like, subtle glances and... And weird little coded conversations and Elio doesn't actually talk that much. <laughs> no. So for them to actually strip away their their sort of pretenses and to have Elio crying openly and being vulnerable and Oliver soothing him was a nice moment for me. However, again, this does not mean that I think the ending of the movie should have been, oh, I'm not going to get married. I'll come back to Italy and we'll be together. That won't be weird. You're 17. I'm a fucking like doctoral student. Yeah, it was in it was interesting to go into it because I'd seen a little bit of a discourse that I think is legitimately fair about we want more gay happy endings and stuff yeah. like and this movie doesn't have that. And then I watched it and I'm like, under no circumstances, circumstances. do I want these two to have a happy ending with each other. And I understand the, the discourse in this area, but it's like, yeah, okay, they didn't die. <laughs> like, they had kind of an awkward coming of age. And Elio will be fine. He'll be fine. And he's fine in the book. Like, it's basically about this transformative relationship that he had and how it sort of, I don't want to say haunted, but, like, informed him through his life and the other times that he saw Oliver. There's, a, I think, a line in the book about how they became each other that summer. You can't maintain this it's it's sort of the uh the ephemeral nature of a first infatuation that happens over the summer in italy like you can't maintain that what do you get how do you bring that home anywhere like when elio goes back to high school and or college and oliver goes back to to i don't know where he new york or wherever to teach um how do you shift that lens like what would that relationship look like on a day-to-day -day basis because i have a feeling it wouldn't look that fucking great um mm -hmm. <laughs> but there's something about the charm bittersweet, you know, sun-drenched, peach-filled blush of, of, like, first queer realization love. Being with someone who's maybe more confident or um, more experienced and who is smart and kind and likes you, that's all very sweet, but it's going to have a bitter end. And I think that that is necessary, but there's something in my brain that just keeps ticking, like, ticking like a clock. There's unfinished business and I want it finished, even <laughs> though the book kind of puts a pin in it. You can you can argue that like maybe something happens between them after the close of the book, but I don't think so. I was also going to say I found the um I found the scene in the book and I wanted to um read you all the paragraph of this is going to be unbearable. <laughs> so I'm going <laughs> to I can't army hammer this, but I will do my best. I'm I'm ready. I had as I had never before in my life the distinct feeling of arriving somewhere very dear, of wanting this forever, of being me, 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 and no one else, just me, of finding in each shiver that ran down my arm something totally alien and yet by no means unfamiliar, 
as if all this had been part of me all my life and I'd misplaced it and he had helped me find it. The dream had been right. This was like coming home, like asking, where have I been all my life? Which was another way of asking, where were you in my childhood, Oliver? Which was yet another way of asking, what is life without this? Which was why, in the end, it was not, it was I and not he who blurted out, not once, but many, many times, you'll kill me if you stop, you'll kill me if you stop, because it was also my way of bringing full circle the dream and the fantasy. Me and him, the longed for words from his mouth to my mouth, back into his mouth, swapping words from mouth to mouth, which was where I must have begun using obscenities that he repeated after me, softly at first, till he said, call me by your name and I'll call you by mine which I'd never done in my life before and which, as soon as I said my own name as though it were his, took me to a realm I never shared with anyone in my life before or since. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's that's quite good. Yeah, it's it, like the whole book is like that. The whole fucking book. And the movie <laughs> can't tap into that close first person that is Elio's little brain. So you're left with a lot of tonal hints and like just the performance of Timmy, uh, Timothee uh, Chalamet and um, Army Hammer, uh, to imbue it with, oh, here, Elio's thinking, like, he looks at me like he hates me and I hate him, but also mm-hmm. I'm attracted to him and hit the bottom of his feet, which is like a thing that keeps happening in the book. He's just like, I want to see the bottom of his feet, the flesh. It's yeah, more yeah, just calm, like, calm the, down. yeah, he's, he's just, he's real, he's real horned up the entire book, <laughs> <laughs> which is evident. I mean, and actually, I would argue that uh, Oliver in the book is not he sends more mixed signals and also is a little bit shittier to Elio than Oliver in the movie. I, I think I explained that to you once and you were like, well, that would be. <laughs> yeah, I was difficult. like, wow, that's the worst thing I've ever heard about that. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it works in the book, but I think it was it was it made sense that they kind of cut some of that out. Anyway, yeah, come, call me by your name has been fucking me up for like two and a half, three weeks now. And I'm I'm tired. <laughs> I'm tired. <laughs> I'm tired, Austin. Can I say the way my brain fixed uh, the movie was that I want Oliver to get with Elio's dad instead. His dad is so good. His dad his is dad. just like a hot bear. I spent Michael the whole movie Stolberg, going. Yeah, something like that. He's so cute. I still can't get over the fact that he was the, the Russian doctor in Shape of Water. Yeah, what the fuck? But yeah, that fucked me up because we saw that like within close quarters. Like we saw Shape of Water and then we saw Call Me By Your Name like a day or two after. And I did not even know. Yeah, I didn't recognize him in the slightest. There's a spe- there's an infamous now speech that um, Elio's dad gives Elio toward the end of the film that is honestly fucking staggering. And the fact that Michael did not get nominated for an Oscar just based on that scene alone is a travesty. That was probably my favorite scene in the movie. That one, oh god, it was good. If the movie had not had that scene, I don't think it would have held together because we yeah. needed a, we needed a voice outside of Elio's head to explain to him like what was going on with him emotionally and how he should handle it. And it was just such a loving scene from a parent to a kid to be like, yeah, we knew what was going on the whole time, and you need to just sit with your pain and and live it and not try and strip it away. Because uh, it this also special for experience me, for me a little bit, and I know that. There's a degree to which, like, I think particularly, I don't know, age difference-wise, it might be a slightly less big deal in Europe. Yeah, and it is. And was. And, and was. But I also feel like, to me, that also epitomized to a degree the way that we don't protect queer youth in the same way mm-hmm. from inappropriate relationships. Because I could, I also honestly saw this as parents being like, okay, he's He's queer. This is as good as it gets. Like, oh, really? we want to support our queer kid. And 
this is what they do, I guess. I didn't see it like that at all. Holy shit. This is no. partially because I hated their relationship. So, oh yeah, that's to true. be fair. That was my, my uncharitable framing, but like seeing his parents not object did not warm my heart throughout the film. Because no, wow. yeah, I was sitting there like, that's really interesting how you let this go on. Man, that is such a different, like that is, is such a different so lens. clearly that they know and aren't like oblivious because they're homophobic or anything. They, they realize, and this is to them the most loving thing that they can do for their kid. That just reminded me of the ways that queer kids will slip, kind of slip through the cracks of a lot of like red flags that get ignored because there's sort of a sense of you're you're already going to be fucked up. If you're a, a heterosexual parent and you don't necessarily recognize the queerness in your child or you're in denial about it, you would not be looking out for potential... Um, if there's a 24-year-old dude coming after your 17-year-old daughter, yeah, you would be aware exactly. of that and want to, like... I don't know. You know, that's the thing, though. I think Especially if I say if he's Army Hammer and he's actually 30. <laughs> like, if he's Army Hammer and he's not 24. I would say, though, I do not think his parents would have had a different attitude had Elio been female. I think that's entirely possible with those parents, but... Yeah, especially c- given their attitude toward um, Elio's, like, the other love affair Elio has in the film with uh, Matsuya. Again, sorry about my pronunciation of everything. I think that they saw him with the autonomy of an adult, understood that he was still a child. You know what I mean? Like, the age of consent in, in Italy at the time was definitely... I think lower than 17 or is lower than 17. So he, in Europe, especially like, I think he was seen as a, a baby adult essentially. So there was yeah. not really, it wasn't, it wasn't as much the age difference. Um, I think for them, this is my read so much as like the first time that their son falls in love and what that's going to do to him. And maybe an element of it being queer and not being something he could act upon in public as readily mm-hmm. as he could with a woman. But I, I think that it really was a testament to their parent parenting that th- even if they had wanted to put a stop to it, I think they would have known that, you know, short of sending Oliver away, any sort of attempt to stamp down on that would have made it even more fraught and would have made it even more like a martyred love story. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I think that they were just like, look, our kid is as grown as he's going to be for this age. He's a sensitive, weird boy. Let him have this 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 transformative love affair with Oliver, who is a fairly safe person. I think I think there's some dubiousness in deciding to have a love affair with a 17 year old. Yeah, I think I'm I'm just like super. Ugh. It's and it's not and it's not. I like I completely 100 percent get it from Elio's perspective. Like I was 100 percent on board with Elio's character the entire film. Like I was just like, yes, this is. I real. understand you. Yeah, Oliver, I don't like it all. No, Oliver, I, I was like, like Oliver. Get get out of here. <laughs> like what you're saying with their parents, short of sending Oliver away. That that was kind of what I was like. That would be the good thing to do. The moment your your visiting grad student who's like 30 starts flirting with your 17 year old you're like okay get on the next train buddy you gotta go he can make out with a schoolboy his age how about yeah there is something to that i i it's funny i think that oliver i think oliver because we do not see his pov really in the film uh let alone the book oliver's hard to piece together and understand in some ways i look at him through the lens of somebody who has a very rigid life mapped out for him. And when he comes to, you know, sun-drenched Italy for that summer, Elio 
is kind of a weird little cipher. I wouldn't call him taciturn, but like he's fairly quiet and he sits around writing out his music and reading and having like barbed exchanges with uh, Oliver and can... I wouldn't say he can keep up with Oliver intellectually because he can't, but he has a lot of like knowledge of his own because he was raised by two academics and he's a nerd. Elio's kind of a, a, a weird kid and I think Oliver, maybe it's unclear how much of that he was allowed to explore in his life back in the States, but I think it makes sense to me that this dude who's who's a doctoral student who goes home and essentially gets engaged, I don't know, immediately, but pretty shortly... Mm-hmm. was essentially having a crisis and f- and probably did not mean <laughs> yeah. to fall in love or or fall into an infatuation with this kid but he clearly did and he knew that it wasn't a great idea but when he looks like army hammer i.e 30 it's a little bit harder to it's like it strains credulity a little bit more because like i'm that age and i would never I don't care how European they were. I would not go near a 17 year old. Yeah, I think that's the hard time. I, I, I have like a hard time with anybody above the age of like, honestly, like 19 or something. 20. Like, yeah, who is attracted to anybody in high school. I'm just like, mm, no, that's weird. You view that that's seems weird. odd. That's a choice. That's fucked up. But yeah, and then <laughs> Army Hammer being like clearly older than he is supposed to be. I'm just like, dude, you're like, you've, you've had the opportunity to sleep with a dude before this. He, I think he had. Um, one of the things that I, two of the things I wanted to mention was one, Timmy was cast when he was 17 originally and he filmed when he was 19. And I looked at pictures Thank of God. Timmy when he was 17 and I'm really glad they had a delay. And two, one of the people he read with for Oliver, uh, was Shia the cannibal, Shia LaBeouf. Oh my god. Um, imagine that. <laughs> oh no. Oh no. Yep. Why did they even consider that? I don't know. Well, like, Shia's a decent actor, but, like, I'm just I mean, picturing sure. it. And just crying sure. quietly. I think it works that it was someone like Army Hammer, who's sort of, in the book, his, uh, Elia's mom jokingly calls him movie star. Uh, a lot because he's just sort of like all American beautiful in some ways. He's just a, an image of like American masculinity. And, and I think that it works that it's Army Hammer, who is kind of a parody of himself. Yeah. Oh, also, I wanted to say I'm really excited that Timmy Timotei uh, is nominated for Best Actor. For yes. The Oscars. I mean, so he, yeah, he, he deserves it. His performance in that film is genuinely incredible. Like, it, it's very, very, very good. He's really good. I'm going to keep my eye on that dude for a long time. I feel like one of the interesting things that Call Me By Your Name brought up for me was how few films like this we get. There is a reason why it has a ton of buzz, and it's because we have, like, I, I looked up after this, like, a list of mainstream queer movies, like, big budget movies, and was like, oh my god. This wasn't even big budget. This was made for, like, nothing. It just looks... Yeah. I mean, it's it a Merchant and Ivory film, essentially. It's a Sony Pictures classic. Yeah. You know, it's 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 it's, it's of a caliber, but it's certainly not mainstream. I It doesn't even occur to me, because I, I run in queer romance circles, and... Our life is inundated with queer media. <laughs> yeah, like, I surround myself with it consciously, and then it was kind of a chance to step outside and be like, oh my god, there's nothing. There's, like, practically nothing at yeah, all. Yeah, like, I was trying to think of movies that gave me similar feelings that did not end in agony, like Brokeback. And the only thing I could think of that were of a caliber with this, like, tonally similar, would be, like, Moonlight, which uh, won for Best Picture last year and richly deserved it. It's a gorgeous film. And it also gives me a similar 
because it's very much a coming of age story. And so it gives me similar feelings there. And it's also intense and small. I was going to say also, um, uh, Carol gives me similar feelings, but it is a very different movie and not really a coming of age film. But it is a queer movie that was extremely well received by critics and has some really stupendous performances and, and is queer and does not end in abject misery. <laughs> Those three are like a weird triad of they may not while they may not all end in like skipping off into the sunset, there is like a sense of hope and bittersweetness in in all of them that they share and are all sort of about transformation of, of queer, queer people, you know, these these formative relationships. One of my other takeaways is that I'm still waiting. I have not seen uh, Moonlight or Carol, which are it's just both sad because I know they're both very good. Glorious, <laughs> and yeah. I really want to see both of them. Thinking just of Call Me By Your Name, like, I'm still waiting for us to start having movies that I could have watched as a queer teen and not wanted to die. <laughs> Honestly, like, Call Me By Your Name would not have made me feel good as a young as a young gay. Oh god, I would have been obsessed with it as a young gay. Oh my god. I mean, I would have been obsessed with it, but I also would have been kind of miserable. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think that's fair. It would have been a step up from broke back <laughs> in that they're alive. And then I'm not crushed. But it would not have made me happy in the way that like a film where the couple stays together and And it and is like sort of age appropriate for teens. Uh, age appropriate and yeah. yeah. Uh, I will say Love Simon is coming out, I believe, yes. this year. Yes, I'm really excited about Love Simon. I'm so glad that that exists yeah I, the trailer looked really cute i'm it's delighted so i'm i'm so happy uh we talked about this in an earlier episode but just the, the i wouldn't say it's a glut but certainly the availability of queer media that is age appropriate for teenagers is so much better than it was when i was a teenager because the shit that i was watching was generally not age appropriate yeah and at the time i was just like <laughs> yeah as a teenager as a teenager i'm like oh whatever this is fine and then like as like a 24 year old i'm like oh no no yeah. no <laughs> all of the things that were romantic to me in my in my teen years are just like me rolling my eyes now. I was discussing um interview with the vampire with Rose last night or the night before. What is time? We were talking about like the fact that it was kind of a just a, a weird queer movie and a, well, a weird queer book slash series. And I remember being obsessed with uh, I think I talked about this in like two years ago, but I was obsessed with the book The Vampire Mon because it is essentially weird, emotional, softcore. Um, <laughs> and I would just read it at school. And if I picked that book up today, I would throw it across the room. It is not <laughs> my thing, but it was seminal at the time. Like it was important. And the things that I romanticized or was into, like they were valid when I was 15, 16, but oh boy, they're silly now. <laughs> and I, I, and I'm, I'm, I believe in making space for queer teens to figure their shit out and dream and all that jazz. <laughs> um, and that's why I think like the film did work for me on a level where from the perspective of Elio's character, it's all super valid. Like I'm like, I feel you, kiddo. Yeah, it's a lot harder to access like Oliver's thing without being super judgy. For Oliver, I'm like, buddy, even 24-year-old book Oliver, like I'm 24. If I like went to Italy for the summer and was like, I'm going to date a 17-year-old, I like to think you would fly to Italy and punch me in the face. <laughs> You wouldn't even tell me. You'd know that if you told me, I would kill <laughs> you. You would do that. Yeah. You'd be like, uh, Austin, <laughs> you gotta die You now. come back right now. <laughs> yeah, you get on that plane. I like 
the, I will say the ship of Oliver and Elio in the movie in that it is contained in the movie. And I do not, I will reiterate this. I do not think that anything healthy could come of them trying to make it work together post, you know, the timeline in the movie. However, my traitor brain is like, what if they've been in the 90s? What if I wrote a modern AU? That'd be even weirder. Like, it's just, <laughs> yeah. it's going fucking that would buck it. wild. No, it wouldn't improve it. But my brain's trying to find a way, and maybe it will one day, and maybe I'll post on Twitter, I wrote bad Call Me By Your Name fanfiction while crying and listening to Sufjan Stevens um, at 3 go. in the morning, because that's what I do now. Also, I made a mistake, and someone put Adele lyrics after an Elio gift set, and I cried <laughs> for like 10 minutes. And I I'm also at this point where I'm like, I look at Timmy Chalamet and I'm like, he's a Caravaggio. Like, I can't even look at him. No, I, my, one painting. of my favorite messages from you recently was just like Adele lyrics to this. And I was like, oh, yeah, never mind. I'll find someone like you. And you were just like. <laughs> <laughs> we were born and raised in a summer haze. It's true. It's true. They were. The other interesting thing that this movie evoked for me is just as Tired as I am, obviously, aren't we all, of narratives like Brokeback Mountain, those are the ones that are more fulfilling to me. It's making me realize how much I want different stories. And we, we talk about this all the time, and I don't know why the revelation has to come anew every, every year, every six yeah. months. But like, <laughs> I do emphasize with people who are kind of like not there for Call Me By Your Name because we're done with that. And I don't think we need to be done. I think what we need is more. More, more and different. Not just this. Maybe we need, you know, our Love Simons and also our, like, our Brookbacks and also our epic sci-fi fantasy. We need, we need it all. I'm tired of inhabiting, like, a sad 17-year-old coming of age. I don't want to inhabit that anymore. Any more than I want to inhabit a 24-year-old who's having an affair with a 17-year-old <laughs> in Italy. I want to inhabit something different. Mainstream media sure is just not, uh, not, not kicking it. They're not delivering that very well. Not delivering it, which, you know, as usual, is the call to action. <laughs> I was also going to say, I, I, as an example of disparate emotional reactions to Call Me By Your Name, so your sort of detachment from it, my bizarre slow burn to absolute obsession. And then I get these texts from Macy who went to see it on a date, which is the funniest thing I've ever heard <laughs> with an ostensibly heterosexual man. Uh, she also took him to shape of water, which I thought was great. Um, good. Yeah. I was like fish fucking. <laughs> it's that time. movie is fantastic. I love shape of water. Way. It's great. And I'm, I'm so excited. Like the Oscar nominees this year are so good. Cause we've got like Jordan Peele, uh, for Get Out and then um, Daniel for Get Out and then we've got some Shape of Water noms and we've got Call Me By Your Name noms and I'm just I'm struggling because I want them all to win simultaneously yeah. and some of them are in competition so I'm like <laughs> and then on top of it um, I have a feeling Daniel Day-Lewis is going to win anyway because he's quote unquote retiring and people really love <sighs> Phantom Thread and fuck that movie so I get these texts from Macy who apparently and I can't believe I failed her did not know really anything about Call Me By Your Name did not know about the peach scene <laughs> did not know about <laughs> Sufjan Stevens having like a, a major role in the soundtrack which you know uh, for, for certain people of a certain age that's a gut punch um and so I just get these incoherent messages or just like, I am broken. <laughs> and she was like, I had to go home and lay on the bed and make noise until I could be a human again. I, I found out about Sufjan Stevens like last year. 
How? I failed everyone I've ever known, apparently. <laughs> also, Tay didn't apparently, know what Call Me By Your Name was. Just, and I've, I've yeah. let everyone down. I knew the phrase as like, oh, that's a gay thing. <laughs> but that was about it. It's a gay thing. I had no idea what it was We've, about. The gays it, have it, stolen it's a, that it's a gay phrase. phrase. That's what the That's gay code. We walk up to each other and we're just like, "Call me by your name, and I'll call you by mine." I, I, I have a way for. I want to. I want to. I want to do the thing. Um, uh, if you oh. haven't read the book, I'm. Well, I know you haven't, but I'm speaking in the general you. Oh, that book, thing. The ending. Ending is. I think in set in 2007, Oliver and Elio were talking. You know, as grown human beings, uh, with 20 years between them, as since their last like. Since their love affair. <laughs> I was like, Oliver got even older? And Eli... <laughs> Elio also aged. I understand that. Exponentially? <laughs> Elio went to space. So... <laughs> Oliver's like 45. <laughs> Elio's 22. <laughs> uh, anyway, sorry. Carry on. No, it's good. Fuck me. How am I supposed to read this with a straight face? Okay. So one of the one of the critiques that you that people have had watching the movie is like, why the fuck are they doing the call me by your name thing? And I was like, it has resonance in the book. I read you all the first instance of call me by your name and I will read you the last one. I'm like you, he said. I remember everything. I stopped for a second. If you remember everything I wanted to say, and if you are really like me, then before you leave tomorrow or when you're just ready to shut the door of the taxi and have already said goodbye to everyone else. And there's not a thing left to say in this life then. Just this once, turn to me, even in jest, or as an afterthought, which would have meant everything to me when we were together. And as you did back then, look me in the face, hold my gaze, and call me by your name. The fucking end. <laughs> Mic drop. Uh. Yeah, it's bad. <laughs> I, I think they did a good job of communicating Elio's internal narrative, but like there is no way to translate how rich Elio's internal life is to the screen. Unless he had a really bad like voiceover. That's it. <laughs> it was just Elio narrating each scene where he's just like, there's a fucking great moment in the book where Oliver's gone for the night or something and he stays out and he's just like, oh, he's missing. And he like entertain Elio entertains himself thinking that Oliver's dead and he's going to be found dead, taking savage satisfaction in the fact that his corpse won't be hot. <laughs> Amazing. And then later he's like, I had unkind thoughts and I feel weird. I'm like, you're so 17. This is the best thing I've ever. He's such a. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> so that was our bizarre um, pseudo review of Call Me By Your Name. Welcome to 2018, y'all. That's that's us outlining many things that we will be doing and the format that our show, show will be taking. And uh, maybe next time we record, I won't be obsessed with this fucking thing. Tune in to find out. <laughs> Let's see if that was bizarre foreshadowing or not. Call Me By Your Name review part two. <laughs> Just a weekly. Austin still doesn't care about it. <laughs> Bi-weekly podcast on Amanda's fucking feelings, while Austin's just like, eh. Da, one of my da, da, da. <laughs> one of my favorite moments from the clip, which I hope I get to incorporate at the end of the episode, is when he's fucking the peach. He comes really fast, and you're like, oh, buddy, still working on that stamina, huh? And for some <laughs> reason, that pops into my head <laughs> when I'm doing the dishes. Just like, oh, buddy. Still working on that stamina. Uh, uh. That was unkind. That was unkind to Elio. I understand and relate to him too much to be like fully sympathetic, if that yeah. makes sense. He's I'm really, just like, yeah. oh, come on. Oh, but, oh, Little 17 year old baby. I understand him and it makes me embarrassed about myself. Yeah. 
Uh, everybody, thank you for joining us on this episode of The Hopeless Romantic. If you want to continue the conversation about Call Me By Your Name, you should probably just tag me because I don't think Austin's going to want to talk about it for 10 hours. I mean, I'll be, I'll be present for it if you... If He'll you show will. up. If yeah. You, if you want to tag him and, like, discuss how he's right... You you have my permission. <laughs> You're like, yes, I also find this movie... And I don't yeah, like Oliver. Yeah. But if you want to talk about how much you cried, you can tag me. So I am on Twitter at Amanda H. Jean. I am there at Austin Chanted. And thank you so much. This episode of The Hopeless Romantic was produced by Daria DeFora and Amanda Jean, with art by Kesey Young and music by Carly Ann Warden. If you want to continue the conversation, follow us on Twitter at Podcast. follow us on Facebook, check out our Patreon, and please rate and review on iTunes if you enjoyed. So that I can record our reactions to this. I hate life. <laughs> Don't. Look, see, I know what you're thinking, and you shouldn't do it. He's gonna do it. But he shouldn't do it. Don't do it, buddy. Oh. Okay, I'm gonna chug this. Chug, chug, chug. Wow. Okay. Okay. Okay, I had a gulp left. That's wow. a bummer. All right. He's just like, I'm in Who this now. Who has this thought? Who has this thought? A 17-year-old boy. You know, I've never been a 17-year-old boy, so I can't what? identify. <laughs> oh my like, god, that's so sticky. You're dri- Oh, stop it. He's just that's like, gross. his face. So, He's- fun fact. Both Timothy, the actor, and the director. Luca tested this, and they were like, it oh, worked. It worked. Because it wasn't originally in the script, but they re- both read the book. And they were like, like, we don't know if this is factual. Like, I don't know if this is like a metaphor or if you can actually do this. And they both tried it and they're like, oh, it I mean, it works. sure you can, but like, you Correct. can't. Your you know, scientists were so preoccupied with whether or not they could. <laughs> <laughs> you know, what I have to say about this, at least it's not a can of peanut butter. <laughs> That's all I have to say. Does it feel good? It's bad. <laughs> Really? I really did it. Did you pause it? Oh no. It, no, no, he's, he's just, just really He's, he's really he's enjoying the beach. <sighs> Shouldn't yell that anymore. I think we're just not Bloody. the demographic for this. No. I'm too I don't I'm too old for this I'm shit. Older. I'm too gay. We're um, we're in the Venn diagram, but we're not in the middle. Yeah. Buddy. <laughs> everything to me right now Buddy, in this moment. Don't, don't do it. He's he's going there. Yeah, no, he's gonna. Oh, you can see the shadow. That's cool. What? Elio? Okay, Elio. <laughs> okay. <Yeah. laughs> wow, five seconds later, huh? <laughs> You're really working on that stamina. He's learned nothing. No. Wait, he's done already. Yeah. He's an idiot. (laughs) Okay, sure. That must be nice. (laughs) Christ. I want to rip my skin off. Please shower. Please shower. Don't lie in your bed. Your bed's with the peach juice. (laughs) (laughs) I'm gonna die. (laughs) Army hammer, no. Army hammer. You should leave. <laughs> oh, I know what I know what happens in this scene. I do too. <laughs>
I'm not ready. I'd be like, why are you sticky? <laughs> tastes weird. Oh my god. Oh my god. You smell like a fruit. Are you ready, Amanda? Are you ready for I'm me? never gonna be ready for this. Okay. What's that? You got a half eaten peach in there. <laughs> Don't mind if I do. for it. sex with this idiot 18 year old who's emotionally immature he has to grow up and fucks peaches (laughs) (laughs) the peach emoji will never be the same amanda we're gonna be in our like 70s and i'm gonna send you a peach (laughs) and you're gonna know what it means (laughs) 